Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 186. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is Hugo. Fantastic! Did everyone hear? I hope you did. Starship Sofa was nominated for another Hugo Award. Second year running. Go on, big fella. <laughs> Wait, big fella, big girl. Because I always like to think that Starship Sofa as a nice little lady. What a fantastic thing, eh? Come on, man. It's funny, I couldn't be kind of around. I've got this new job and I'm kind of all batting and balling with that. And I couldn't really be around on the day or on the night when it was kind of nominated. And there was just so many emails and Twitter congratulations when I kind of eventually got around to the internet and everything. And whoa, am I chuffed a bit. I just want to read an email, if you don't mind. And this kind of really sums up all kind of, you know, why Starship Sofa has been nominated for a Hugo Award, you know. Roger, who sent in this email, has just kind of hit the nail on the head. As a taxi driver in Birmingham, the radio has always bored me. You know, I'm in my late 40s and being a bit of a technophobe, I eventually discovered audiobooks. Initially, I burned CDs from sites like LibriVox and Podiobooks. Then I relented and bought a little iPod. That's exactly like me. So much easier, and then I stumbled across podcasts, Escape Pod and its family, the fantastic Drabblecast and a host of scientific sites came first. Then I found yourselves. At first I would fo- fast forward through the chat to find the fiction, but then I started listening to bits of your chatting and found myself going back to hear what I'd missed. Just had to start from episode 1 and follow it through. I'm now at episode 170, not long before I catch up. Your meta show 169 eventually made me write. It has been wonderful listening to the show and the family of presenters develop. Never mind the fantastic content. You guys are better than bloody EastEnders. 
Not that I watch that, I hasten to add. Your passion for the show is so infectious. D, the mad Irishman. JJ, the voice of reason. Amy, the voice of authority. It was great to hear Skeet at last. Megan, Jod, and on. And Larry, what can I say about dear Larry? The voice of, a, <laughs> the voice of an old treasured uncle. Bloody brilliant, the lot of you. No Hollywood casting agent could have built a better team. Some of the interviews are collector's items in their own right. From the lows of Larry's illness to the highs of the Hugo Wade. You buggers have nearly had me in tears at times and bouncing off the ceiling and others. I knew about the Hugo win but had to stop myself jumping ahead for the announcement. So well deserved. Just a big thank you, Roger. And actually he's talking about last year's Hugo because he's starting, Roger's starting right from the back there. So, you know, that exactly sums it up. You know, it is that team and it is everybody. Do you know what I mean? It's just who helps out with Starship Sova. Honestly, everyone, thank you. And Roger lovely email please thank you so much so what an extraordinary time during you know I mean? second year running for starships over and it's funny i think as well we're up against everyone who was there the last time which is rather kind of strange and bizarre again you know they're all the same kind of contenders that have been there for a while and nominated again so that's it uh, and i actually like i say starship was new that time and i thought it might let somebody else in but it's still the kind of the old kind of Saltworths who've been there. So I was I was honestly expecting to go up against say you know SF Signal and you know people like that. You know, but it's the same it's the same magazines that are out there that are kind of in there. So get voting. I mean, I'll it's I don't think there's links there yet to kind of vote. There might be. I'm not too sure. But I'll certainly kind of keep you all in tuned. You know when. The kind of the vote and start when it's you know that would be fantastic. Man, come on! Up. While I'm here, I might as well give you like a little rundown of what's going on, who's in and who's who's not in for the Hugo Awards. We'll go with best novel first, and it's Blackout All Clear. Now that's the Connie Willis book that you know took a years to write, and it was a huge book, and the publishers split it in half. Now it's actually in no in you know all kind of sense. That's two books, but it's actually. It's been put into kind of one bracket, so it's Connie Willis in there with that blackout and all clear. Cryburn by Louise Macasta Bjoid. Then Dervish House by Ian MacDonald. Feed by Maria Grant. And 100,000 King- Kingdoms by N.K. Jemish. Novella. The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Beneath the Queen's Window by Rachel Swarsky. The Life Cycle of Software Objects, Ted Chang. The Maiden Flight of Macaulay's Bellerophon by Elizabeth Hand. The Sultan of the Clouds, Geoffrey A. Landis. And Trotya by Alistair Reynolds. Then we have Best Novelette, Eight Miles by Sean McCullen. The Emperor of Mars, Alan Steele. Go on, that was what we, hey, hey, you know, Starship Silver played that one there as well. Fantastic. Came out in Asimov's that one, June 2010. That's my little one I'm rooting for. The Jaguar House in Shadow by Elliot Debardeau. Plus or minus James Patrick Kelly. The Leviathan Whom Thou Has Made by Eric James Stone. And you know, the best short story, well, best novelettes there, all them, Analog and Asimov's. You know what I mean? The old print magazines there as well. There you go. Best short story, Amaryllis, Carrie Vaughan, that came out in light speed, go on. For Want of a Nail, Marianne Robinette Quowl, Marianne, Mary Robinette Quowl, Asimov's, Ponies by Kiz Johnson, Tor.com, The Things, Peter Watts, Clark's World. I tell you what is, rather, I'm not going to go into every kind of one, 
but the best dramatic presentations short form there's three Doctor Who's in there Christmas Carol Vincent and the Doctor and the Pandoric Opens and the Big Bang but there's also The Lost Thing written by Sean Tan but fuck me Ray Bradbury <laughs> remember that song that's in there that's the one I, that's the kid I have on the, on the win that would be fantastic if that one yes you can watch it online as well Just go to YouTube and type in those immortal words fuck me Ray Bradbury ho ho you know the bit I love about that <laughs> Fuck me, Ray Bradbury is. Can I? Because I've just watched it again. I've watched it over and over, and over again. But <laughs> the bit where there's another girl and they're kind of standing next to each other, and she's got "I love Kurt Vonnegut" on a t-shirt, and that girl just slaps her across the face. If there's there's no one apart from Ray, that's fine. I'm telling you now, that's gonna I put money on it. Well, I'll put my money on it. Don't worry, I'll not put anyone else's. That if that wins the Hugo Award, you know. Yes, it'd be fantastic, but it'll go through the ages, you know, from now until eternity. Those words, you know what I mean? Fuck me, Ray Bradbury will be on the kind of on the kind of the prestigious Hugo Award list of winners. Do you know what I mean? Just for that one, you know, just for that to have it forever. The title, you know, in in two thousand and eleven, the song "Fuck Me, Ray Bradbury" won the Hugo Award. You've got to make that happen. You've got to make that happen. Best editor, short form. This is fantastic as well. John Joseph Adams, go on. Stanley Schmidt, Jonathan Strand, Gordon Van Geller, and Sheila Williams. The semi-prosine is just a kind of hotbed of it. You know, it's all the kind of ones there. Weird Tales, Locust, Lightspeed, In the Zone, and Clark's Worlds. That's just cracking. Best fanzine, this is, this is the one... Banana Wings, Challenger, The Drink Tank, File 770, and Starship Sofa. So there you go. That is a fine a fine day for Starship Sofa. There again, second time nominated for a Hugo Award. <laughs> Fantastic. Anyway, enough of this ferocity. Let's get down to business. Let's get something. Get JJ Campanella. Bring some stability and sense to this ship for once please greetings and transmutations ladies and gentlemen welcome to this april 2011 science news update i'm your host for this evening of phenomenal scientific hearsay and rumor jim campanella excuse me for the transmutation comment I have now watched and or listened to about 15 episodes of the updated anime Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood while working in the lab this week, and I have a serious monkey on my back. Wow, what a show. I highly recommend this one to you if you're a fantasy or science fiction fan. This new adaptation sticks very closely to the manga, unlike the original show, and it is simply blowing me away in terms of drama, action, and mystery. Uh, at some points, it almost plays out like a fantasy animated version of the now-extinct Fox Drama 24. Anyway, enough of these random thoughts. Let's get on with science. First story of the night. A new antibiotic is on the horizon, and it is being developed by IBM, of all companies. When I first read the story, I adjusted my glasses to assure myself that what I was seeing was correct. And yes, it was. IBM. And no, we are not talking about nanites or any other kind of robotic antibiotic. 
IBM is really developing the real stuff. What is very cool is that their new antibiotic overcomes bacteria that appear to be resistant to lots of other antibiotics. IBM is on a promising new track to kill off those unkillable strains. Thousands of people a year develop life-threatening staph infections resistant to multiple antibiotics. And it takes only about 10 or 20 years for microbes to develop resistance to traditional antibiotics that target a particular metabolic pathway inside the cell. Dr. James Hedrick, a materials scientist at IBM's Almaden Lab in San Jose, California, has just published an account of their new drug in the latest issue of Nature Chemistry. Hedrick's new drug is a specially designed nanoparticle that kills bacteria by poking holes in them. His group hopes that the microbes will be less likely to develop resistance to this revolutionary type of drug because it is not a drug in the strict sense and physically pokes holes in the cell membrane. And no, again, this is not a little tiny robot poking holes in the membrane. This is not the first time that drugs of this type have been tried out. There has been little success in clinical trials in the past. They were either ineffective in their killing because of the complex milieu of the animal body, or worse, uh, the particles were toxic and killed animal cells in addition to the pathogens. Hedrick says, quote, We're trying to generate polymers that interact with microbes in a very different way than traditional antibiotics, unquote. To do this, Hedrick's research group took advantage of a library of polymer building blocks that IBM owns that can be mixed and matched to make new complex nanoparticles. To make a nanoparticle that would selectively attack bacterial membranes and then break down harmlessly in the body, they put together two types of building blocks. First, at the center of the polymer sequence is a backbone element that's water-soluble and tailored to interact with bacterial membranes. Second, at either end of the backbone is a hydrophobic sequence, which doesn't like water and doesn't deal well with water. When a small amount of these polymer chains are added to water, the differences between the ends and the middle of the sequence drive the polymers to self-assemble into spherical nanoparticles whose shell is entirely made up of the part that will interact with the bacterial cells. IBM researchers say this new drug can be injected intravenously to treat people with life-threatening infections or can even be made into a gel that can be applied directly to wounds to prevent infection. IBM has three problems that need to be overcome right now with this drug, as far as I can see. The first problem IBM has is safety. Initial tests of the IBM particles with human blood cells and live mice have been promising. And Hedrick says in the article the nanoparticles didn't interact with human cells because their electrical charge is significantly greater than that of bacterial cells. Also, there were no signs of toxicity in the mice injected with the particles and none of them died. I, however, would sleep more soundly knowing that something as potentially pernicious as these particles are highly tested. IBM's second problem is the same one that was faced when penicillin was first discovered. There's simply not enough of it around, really, to do any serious clinical testing. The IBM group is working on making larger quantities of the polymers, scaling up from the current couple of gram capacity to kilogram quantities needed for larger clinical tests. IBM's third problem is that they are not a drug company, and apparently they have no intentions of becoming a drug company. Hedrick says that they plan on partnering with a healthcare company to license the polymer drugs. The geeky side of me was a bit disappointed to read that I wouldn't be able to take antibiotics in the future labeled IBM. The thought of that is just kind of cool somehow and appeals to the old hacker inside me. Oh well, whatever. The next story is kind of related to a discussion I had with my students in my medical genetics class last week. 
We were discussing immunogenetics. Just as that sounds, it's genetics that deals with the immunological system. If you don't know, in your immune system, there's a special type of white blood cell called a macrophage, which basically is a microscopic soldier for the body. It wanders around, and a lot like the blob from the old movie, engulfs any kind of invader, be that viral, bacterial, or even fungal. Once an invader is engulfed, the macrophage has the ability to activate other parts of the immune system, like the T-cells, and alert them to a potential invasion. Actually quite cool. One of the other cool things that macrophages can do is follow a chemical trail and actually track down the source of an infection at a wound site. The cells can travel huge distances through the body to do this. The process of following a chemical trail is called chemotaxis. If the macrophages do not have that chemotactic ability or lose it, then you will be very sick. In my genetics class, we were actually talking about a rare genetic disease called Chediak-Higashi syndrome, which, by the way, sounds like something out of Star Trek, but is a real childhood genetic disease. Kids who have this problem have these symptoms. They have immune deficiency, partial albinism, they bruise easily, they have a very low platelet count, which explains the bruising, and they have recurrent infections. And among this whole series of serious problems, the children's macrophages have impaired chemotaxis, which reduces the quality of their immune responses quite a bit. The disease is fatal in childhood, usually because of infections which cannot be fought off by the infected child. Few patients live to adulthood. The ones who do survive the infections have a progressive neurologic breakdown, which is also part of the syndrome. Not particularly pleasant at all. Anyway, that is not the topic here. The topic here is actually how cool macrophages are when they're actually working. Mathematical biologist Dr. Andy Reynolds of the Rothamsted Research Institute in Harpenden, England, has been examining just how amazing macrophages are at traveling to infected wound sites. And apparently these cells have abilities that are astounding at solving an age-old mathematical problem called the traveling salesman problem. The traveling salesman problem is simply, how do you mathematically calculate the shortest routes to travel to a series of cities that are separated by many miles? Using a computer and linear programming, you can find a lower boundary to these problems. The lower boundary is a distance the minimum route can't be shorter than, and then that can be a guide to search for the shortest route. Routes that have a thousand cities or fewer can be easily solved using this computer method, but when you add more than a thousand cities to your route, the number of calculations required to find the shortest path increases exponentially. Worse, scientists still don't have one clean algorithm that can crunch the numbers, no matter how many cities, and find the shortest route. In fact, researchers don't even know if such a solution is even out there or exists. The Clay Mathematics Institute in Boston offers a million dollars to anybody who can come up with a solution or prove that it doesn't exist. Well, apparently, macrophages are masters of the minimum route. They use the follow-your-nose strategy of chemotaxis to create these routes. Reynolds' paper indicates that an immune cell seeking five different targets will find a perfect traveling salesman route every time. With ten targets, the cells are still pretty efficient. On average, their routes were only 12% longer than the shortest possible route. These routes were comparable to the solutions calculated by a computer algorithm. Reynolds says that, quote, macrophages taking advantage of chemotaxis is a nice example of when the suboptimal becomes optimal. I'm not entirely sure what he means by that. I'm not a mathematician. I think he's implying that the cells are making the best of a bad situation and taking whatever advantage they can. 
In this case, they're finding the bacteria by that faint chemical plume they leave behind, and not just doing a comprehensive search. Onward and upward? Well, how about downward? Here's a story from the bottom of the ocean. I remember learning the word sessile when I was still in grade school. It was one of those words that just stuck with me for years and never really got forgotten, just because it's such a useful word. I remember calling one of my roommates in college a pointless sessile organism when I find that he had not left the couch one entire Saturday. He just stared at me and narrowed his eyes in response. I was not even entirely sure he knew what I meant. Anyway, if your memory is failing, as mine is as I'm growing older, sessile refers to any organism that is rooted to one spot and doesn't move around. Sponges and trees and bushes are sessile. The problem with being sessile is one of protection. How do you protect yourself from being eaten when you cannot just run away? The sea cucumber, which is not a cucumber at all, but a kind of derm, has perfected one method of protection. As Dr. Patrick Flamong from the University of Mons in France discussed in the latest issue of the Journal of Experimental Biology. Now, as Flamong explains, sea cucumbers already are pretty well protected. They come equipped with cuvarian tubules, These allow the animal to expel sticky threads that ensnare hapless predators which dare attack the poor little guy. They also have mutable collagenous tissue which allows them to stiffen or soften their body for protection, sort of like internal hardening armor. But Flamong says that sea cucumbers also have an additional protection. Put simply, they taste bad. Remember when your mom made you suck on a bar of soap for saying dirty words? Well, sea cucumbers produce the same stuff that makes soap taste so bad. Detergent molecules called saponin. Yes, sea cucumbers taste like life boy. Flamong wanted to see just how effective these chemicals were, so he took samples of the sea cucumber's body wall and extracted and purified their saponins. Then his research group analyzed the saponins with mass spectrometry and found eight different types in the animal's body wall. Flamang then used an innovative mass spectrometry imaging technique to identify the location of each saponin in the sea cucumber's body wall. Together they found six of the saponins in the body wall's outer layer, and two in the inner layer. The team also analyzed the saponin distribution in the body walls of mildly stressed cucumbers after they'd been poked and found that it changed. Flamang suspects that The smaller saponins in the epidermis of the relaxed sea cucumbers are converted into the larger, more subtle saponins for release into the water when the animals are stressed. Having analyzed the sea cucumber's saponin distribution, the Frenchman decided to find out how the animals use the compounds for defense. Collecting seawater surrounding relaxed and stressed cucumbers, he extracted saponin from the water and found that the relaxed animals released one saponin while the stressed sea cucumbers released six different ones, two of which were new and could not have come from the sea cucumber's body wall, but presumably somewhere else in the body. Finally, Flamang decided to find out what the saponins did to fish. He had a small quantities of the compounds, similar to the amounts released by the sea cucumbers, to an aquarium with Mediterranean rainbow wrasse and oscillated wrasse. And he noted that the fish began breathing heavily, quote-unquote, and racing around the tank. By the way, I have no idea what it means when a fish breathes heavily. Anyway, the fish soon settled down and none of them died. Flamang suspects that fish can smell the unpleasant-tasting compounds and give the sea cucumbers a wide berth 
to avoid getting a bad taste in their mouths, much as humans avoid annoying co-workers when they see them coming. Several different people have emailed me about this next story, so I guess, well, I'm obligated to actually report on it, although I suspect you've already read about it in your newspaper headlines. A couple of weeks ago in the journal Nature, it was reported by Dr. Takahiko Ogawa of Yokohama City University in Japan that his lab, for the first time, was able to produce sperm cells in cell culture conditions, or in a petri dish, as the newspapers reported. By the way, cell culture has not been done in a petri dish for the last 30 or 40 years, but that's beside the point. Ogawa, a professor of urology and his colleagues in Japan, took small biopsies of testes tissue from baby mice that contained spermatogonial stem cells, but no mature sperm. The mice were too young to be producing any sperm. Ogawa then simulated the natural environment of the testes by suspending the fragments on a semi-solid media support and partially bathing them in liquid. Weirdly, the formulation that he used is usually employed in cultures of embryonic stem cells to keep them in their undifferentiated state, not to cause them to differentiate. Here, Ogawa discovered that this media had the opposite effect, encouraging spermatogonia to differentiate into mature sperm. Ogawa said, quote, We have not yet identified the key factors in this media which really helped our system. My next challenge is to identify those factors and make an even better culture media to improve sperm quality and make it applicable to other animals. While the sperm counts produced were relatively low in culture, they were functional, the sperm cells that is. Ogawa inseminated adult mice with a cultured sperm and found they were able to produce pups that in turn were able to mate naturally. He said, quote, the final evaluation of sperm functionality was to make offspring and see the healthiness of that offspring. I'm still keeping the offspring, and they are about 14 months old, and they look very normal, comparable to other mice, unquote. The full health consequences in the animals produced from in vitro sperm remains to be seen. The problem is, when cells differentiate into sperm, major changes occur in their DNA that make those cells vulnerable to environmental factors of all sorts. Depending on what is in the surrounding environment, factors could affect a cell's DNA, creating defects that could be passed on for future generations. Again, this is from Ogawa, quote, We don't know the long-term consequences or the transgenerational effects, but as a model system, this is fantastic. It gives us the opportunity to start looking at things in an in vitro setting and specifically alter and dissect cells in a much easier manner. It's a great step forward, unquote. The ability to generate sperm cells like this could be a major boon to infertile men or non-sperm-producing prepubescent males that face radiation treatment for cancer. Unlike adults, kids cannot produce sperm and have it frozen away to be used after the ravages of the cancer treatment. Culture-produced cells could help those boys produce their own offspring years later, despite the effects of those cancer treatments. The last story of the evening involves enlightenment. Okay, that was a really bad pun. We know from lots of Jacques Cousteau specials, as well as movies like Finding Nemo, that there are lots of organisms at the bottom of the oceans that create their own light. Dazzling squid, graceful jellyfish, and radiant fish use bioluminescence to attract mates, detect prey, camouflage themselves, or just deter predators. As I said, we've all seen examples of these extraordinary adaptations to transmit light in open ocean species, but it's interesting that organisms much closer to the ocean's surface 
that don't live in deep open water seem to have these abilities as well. The tidal pool living, thumbnail-sized clusterwink snail is known to be among these luminous surface creatures. But the mechanism behind its brilliant light production was a mystery, and why it produces the light at all has been a complete mystery until now as well. Now, doctors Dimitri Dehane and Narita Wilson at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography at UC San Diego have examined what is going on with the cluster wink in a paper published last month in the Proceedings of the Royal Society. The researchers first caught the tiny snails on the beaches of eastern Australia, where they are native, and cluster among rocks and tidal pools. The duo then transported their catch to the laboratory to quantify the snails' emitted light. First, they stimulated the snails to produce light using chemicals, and within seconds, the cluster wink emitted a brilliant radiant blue-green light from an area of its body incapable of extending beyond its shell, so it was inside of the shell. Next, they placed the snails with other animals to find out what provoked their light display. The snails produced their highest quality light levels when they encountered species that they contacted frequently. The team then placed the snails with actively swimming frogs and lizards, providing ample opportunity for physical interaction. Physical contact did trigger intense light displays from the snails. As a source of light cannot extend beyond the snail's opaque and pigmented shell, the authors then characterized how the shell transmitted and actually diffused this brilliant light. They found that despite its hardiness, the shell transmits most wavelengths of light, with the exception of the blue-green peak of the snail's bioluminescence. However, when blue-green light is shown into the shell, mimicking natural bioluminescence, it scatters to parts of the shell not directly exposed to the source, allowing regions of the shell that are not directly illuminated to glow. They also found that the wavelength of light is not altered by the pigment or opacity of the shell in contrast to other bioluminescent organisms that do alter the light's color. The cluster wing shell also transmits light incredibly effectively for how thick it is. Its efficiency is eight times higher than any equivalent commercially available diffuser. Although high transmittance is usually associated with low diffusion in materials, the shell's biomaterial retains a remarkable capacity to diffuse light. In fact, the blue-green glow projects over the entire shell, an area ten times larger than that of commercial diffusers would. The authors believe that this property co-evolved with the snail's luminous capacity, as the shells of closely related non-bioluminescent species do not diffuse or transmit light at all. This is the first account of a calcified structure that diffuses and enlarges biologically produced light. Dehane and Wilson say that this structure may provide inspiration in constructing the next generation of light-transmitting materials and optical devices. However, the take-home message that these two researchers got from the cluster wink is that their shells provide an exceptional defense tactic, that is, to produce an intense and enlarged flash of light to deter predators while offering shelter to the resident within. Not bad for such a tiny creature. Well, that's all for me from now. As always, take care. Stay away from any dinners that include sea cucumbers, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go, James. Thank you so much. Honestly, you know, Jimmy, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, Jimmy, for the likes of you sticking out starships, that's why we're, you know, we're kind of here today and getting these awards. It's for everyone just kind of chipping in and helping out.
Jim, thank you so much. I want to also point you to, it's the end of the month, and I'm so excited, I actually forgot about the cover art. Matt, now Matt, I'm just going to screw your name, surname up, but I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it a go. Matt, Wazilia, Matt, it's killed it, haven't I? But anyways, check out Matt's art. Matt dropped us, dropped us a line and says, Tony, I'd love to do some work for Starship Sober. And I had a look at his, and honestly, he's, he does them actually on canvas. His paintings on big kind of canvas boards and everything like that. So have a look there at Matt's work. I, I love it. And he's got some of these kind of blue little kind of robots there. Ah, just one of my favourite things. Matt, thank you so much. I'm sorry I kind of forgot to plug you at the beginning of the show. I, I, you can understand why. So we're going to jump into the main fiction, and it is by Peter F. Hamilton, Death Day. Now this came out, this story came out oodles ago in a UK magazine called Fear, and it actually came out in 1991, God, and this is kind of, I was subscribed to this magazine when it came out, and this is where really, I, I, one of the kind of cruxes in my life where I kind of started reading and started writing, I don't know if, you can, if everyone knows, didn't didn't start reading until, like, God, I was... Let you know, twenty yard or something like that. Too busy lighting fires and being a cheeky little bugger. <laughs> but it was, you know, this and I remember this story by Peter F. Hamilton and like I say, Pete was just probably kicking off his he's right you know, just kinda getting going with his writing there as well, selling the like magazines. And look where Pete's gone now, so fantastic. I'll put a link on to Peter F. Hamilton's site. We've had him on, if you go back through the, the actual shows, there's an interview I did with, if you haven't listened to that, with Peter F. Hamilton. And hopefully I'll try and get him back on, because we've got some more stories by Peter. And, like I say, he was a great guy to have a chat with, so that would be fantastic. I'll, I'll certainly do that. It is narrated by Graham Dunlop. Again, Graham just said, hey, Tone, let's have a chance at narrating. And he did a fine one as well, so fantastic. Graham, thank you so much. So the Starship's over, and... Those two, ah, careful, nearly did. Those two Hugo nominations. He is very proud to present. Death Day by Peter F. Hamilton Today, Miran would kill the Xenoch. His confidence had soared to a dizzying height driven by some subconscious premonition. He knew it was today. Even though he was awake, he could hear the ethereal wind howl of the ghosts spewing out their lament, their hatred of him. It seemed the whole world shared in the knowledge of impending death. He had been hunting the Xenoch for two months now. An intricate, deadly game of pursuit, flight and camouflage played out all over the valley. He had come to learn the Xenoch's movements how it reacted to situations, the paths it would take, its various hiding places in rocky crevices, its aversion to the steep shingle falls. He was its sole twin now. It belonged to him. What Miran would have liked to do was get close enough so he might embrace its neck with his own hands to feel the life slipping from his tormentor's grotesque body. But above all, he was a practical man. He told himself he wasn't going to be asinine sentimental about it. If he could pick it off with the laser rifle, he would do so. No hesitation, no remorse. 
He checked the laser rifle's power charge and stepped out of the homestead. Home. The word mocked him. It wasn't a home. Not anymore. A simple three-room prefab shipped in by the Jubara Development Corporation designed for two-person assembly. Candice and himself. Her laugh, her smile, the rooms had echoed with them, filling even the glummest day with life and joy. Now, it was a convenient shelter, a dry place from which to plot his campaign and strategies. Physically, the day was no different from any other on Jubara. Gloomy, leaden-grey clouds hung low in the sky, marching east to west. Cold mist swirled about his ankles, coating grass and rocks alike in glistening dewdrops. There would be rain later. There always was. He stood before her grave, a shallow pit piled high with big crumbling lumps of local sandstone. Her name was carved in crude letters on the largest. There was no cross. No true God would have let her die. Not like that. This time, he whispered, I promise, then it will be over. He saw her again, her pale sweat-soaked face propped up on the pillow. A sad pain in her eyes from the knowledge there was little time left. Leave this world, she'd said, and her burning fingers closed around his hand for emphasis. Please, for me. We've made this world a lifeless place. It belongs to the dead now. There's nothing here for the living anymore. No hope, no purpose. Don't waste yourself. Don't mourn for the past. Promise me that. So he'd held back the tears and sworn he would leave to find another life on another world because it was what she wanted to hear and he had never denied her anything. But they were empty words. There was nowhere for him to go, not without her. After that he had sat helplessly as the fever consumed her, watching her breathing slow and the harsh stress lines on her face smooth out. Death made her beauty fragile. Smothering her in wet earth was an unholy sacrilege. After he finished her grave, he lay on the bed thinking only of joining her. It was deepest night when he heard the noise. A muffled knock of rock against rock. With a great effort, he got to his feet. The cabin walls spun alarmingly. He had no idea how long he'd lain there. Maybe hours, maybe days. Looking out of the door, he could see nothing at first. Then his eyes acclimatized to the pale streaks of phosphorescence shivering across the flaccid underbelly of the clouds. A dark concentration of shadows hovered over the grave, scrabbling softly at the stones. Candice, 
he shouted, drunk with horror. Dark, suppressed imaginings swelled out of his subconscious. Demons, zombies, ghouls and trolls, chilling his bones to brittle sticks of ice. The shadow twisted at his cry, edges blurring, becoming eerily insubstantial. Miran screamed wordlessly, charging out of the homestead, his muscles powered by outrage and vengeance lust. When he reached the grave, the Xenoch had gone, leaving no trace. For a moment, Miran thought he might have hallucinated the whole event, but then he saw how the limestone had been moved, the rucked mud where non-human feet had stood. He fell to his knees, panting, stroking the limestone. Nauseating fantasy images of what the Xenoch would have done with Candice had it uncovered her, threatened to extinguish the little flicker of sanity he had remaining. His future ceased to be a nebulous uncertainty. He had a purpose now. He would remain in this valley until he had ensured Candice was granted the dignity of eternal rest. And there was also the question of vengeance against the monster desecrator. Miran left the grave and walked past the neglected vegetable garden down towards the valley floor. The hills of the valley were high prison walls, steep slopes and cliffs smeared with loose stone and rough reedy grass. They reared up to create a claustrophobic universe, forever preventing him from seeing out. Not that he had any desire to. The memory of all things good dwelt between the hills. The river ran a crooked course ahead of him, wandering back and forth across the valley floor in great loops. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Fed by countless silver trickles which seeped out of secret fissures high in the forbidding massifs. Long stretches of the low meadowland below the homestead 
were flooded again. Skeletal branches and dead rodent analogue creatures bobbed lazily on the slow flow of muddy water. Further down the valley, where the river's banks were more pronounced, straggly trees had established a hold, trailing weeping boughs into the turbulent water. This was his land, the vista he and Candice had been greeted with when they struggled through the saddle in the hills at the head of the valley. They had stood together, lost in delight, knowing this was right, that their gamble had paid off. They would make their life here and grow crops for the ecological assessment team's outpost in return for a land grant of 20,000 acres. Then, when the colonists started to arrive, their vast holding would make them rich. Their children would be Jubara's first merchant princes. Miran surveyed the valley and all its wrecked phantoms of ambition, planning carefully. He had abandoned yesterday's chase at the foot of the sheer gorge on the other side of the river. Experience and instinct merged in his mind. The Xenoc had been skulking along the base of the valley's northern wall for the last two days. There were caves riddling the rock of the foothills in that area, and a scattering of aboriginal fruit bushes. Shelter and food. It was a good location. Even the Xenoc occasionally sought refuge from Jabara's miserable weather. He stared ahead, seeing nothing, feeling around the recesses of his mind for their perverse bond. How it had come about, he never knew. Perhaps they'd shared so much suffering they'd developed a mental kinship, something related to Edenist affinity. Or perhaps the Xenoch possessed some strange telepathy of its own, which would account for why the ecological investigators had never caught one. Whatever the reason, Miran could sense it. Ever since that night at the grave, he had known of the other's presence, moving around the valley, sneaking close, stopping to rest. Weird thoughts and confused images oozed constantly into his mind. Sure enough, the Xenoc was out there to the north, on the hummocks above the flood water, picking its way slowly down the valley. Miran struck out across the old fields. The first crops he'd planted were potatoes and maize, both geneered to withstand Jubara's shabby temperate climate. The night they'd finished planting, he carried Candice out to the fields and laid her down on the new furrows of rich, dark hummus. She laughed delightedly at the foolishness that had come over him. But the ancient pagan fertility rite was theirs to celebrate that night. As the spring winds blew and the warm drizzle sprinkled their skin, he ended her with a fierce triumph, a primeval man appeasing the gods for the bounty of life they'd granted, and she cried out in wonder. The crops had indeed flourished. 
but now they were choked with aboriginal weeds. He had dug up a few of the potatoes since, eating them with fish or one of the chickens that had run wild. A monotonous diet, but food wasn't an interest, just an energy source. The first of the morning drizzles had arrived before he was halfway to his goal. Cold and insistent, it penetrated his jacket collar and crept down his spine. The stones and mud underfoot became treacherously slippery. Cursing under his breath, he slowed his pace. Presumably, Zenoch was equally aware of him. It would soon be moving on, building valuable distance between them. Miran could move faster, but unless he got within a kilometre, he could never hope to catch it in a day. Yet, he didn't dare take any risks. A fall and a broken bone would be the end of it. Zenoch was moving again. Throughout the intermittent hills and the drizzle, Miran tried to match what he was seeing in his mind with what he could see. One of the buttress-like foothills radiating out from the base of the mountain ahead of him had created a large promontory, extending for over half a kilometre out into the flood water. It was a grassy slope studded with cracked boulders, the detritus of past avalanches. The oldest stones were coated with the emerald fur of a spongy aboriginal lichen. The Xenoch was making for the promontory's tip. Trapped! If Miran could reach the top of the promontory, it could never hope to get clear. He could advance toward it down the narrowing strip of solid ground, forcing it to retreat right to the water's edge. Miran had never known it to swim. Gritting his teeth against the marrow numbing cold, he waded through a fast icy stream which had cut itself a steep gully through the folds of peat skirting the mountain. It was after that, hurrying towards the promontory through slackening drizzle, that he came across the bull demon skeleton. He paused to run his hands reverently over some of the huge ivory ribs curving above him. The bull demons were lumbering quadruped brutes, carnivores with a small brain and a filthy temper. Their meat was mildly poisonous to humans, and they would have played havoc amongst pioneer farming villages. A laser hunting rifle couldn't bring one down, and there was no way the development company would issue colonists with heavy caliber weapons. Instead, the company had cleared them out with a geniered virus. As the bull demons shared a common biochemistry with the rest of the planet's aboriginal mammalian species, it was tacitly assumed in the boardroom to be a multiple xenocide. Billions of fusio dollars had already been invested in exploring and investigating Jubara. The board couldn't afford to have potential colonists scared off by xenog dinosaur analogues. Too many other colony worlds were in the market for Earth's surplus population. The virus had been 99% successful. Many of Miran's dreams were 
of the fifty million Xenoch ghosts. If he had known of the crime beforehand, he would never have taken up the development company's generous advance colonizer offer. Throughout history, there had never been a planet so sinned against as Jubara. The ghosts outnumbered the ecological assessment team 20,000 to 1, engulfing them in tidal waves of hatred. Maybe it was the ghosts who had disturbed Jubara's star. The astronomers claimed they'd never seen an instability cycle like it before. Three months after he and Candice arrived in the valley, the Solar Observatory confirmed the abnormality. Flare and spot activity was decreasing rapidly. Jubara was heading straight for an ice age. Geologists confirmed the meagre 5,000-year intervals between glacial epochs. They too had seen nothing like it. Botanists, with the wonder of hindsight, said it explained why there were so few Aboriginal plant species. The planet was abruptly declared unsuitable for colonisation. The Jubara Development Company went bankrupt immediately. All assets were frozen. The Confederation Assembly Xenological Custodian Committee filed charges of xenocide against the board members. Now, the Army of Civil Engineering teams designated to build a shiny new spaceport city would never arrive. No one would come to buy their crops. The Ecological Assessment Team was winding up their research. Even the excited astronomers were preparing to fly back to their universities, leaving automatic monitoring satellites to collect data on the rogue star. The shutdown had killed Candice. It broke her spirit. With her enhanced immunology system, she should never have succumbed to the fever. But if it hadn't been the germs, it would have been something else. All they'd laboured over, all they'd built, all their shared dreams had crumbled to dust. She died of a broken heart. The Xenoch was coming back down the promontory, moving as fast as it had ever done. It had realised its mistake. But, <laughs> not swiftly enough. Events were tilting in his favour. Soon now, so very soon. Miran had reached the foot of the promontory. Now he scrambled over the deep drift of flinty stones that had cascaded down its side from an eroded cliff higher up the mountain, hurrying for the higher ground of the summit. From there he could cover both sides with the laser rifle. Small stones crunched loudly underfoot, betraying the urgency of his pounding feet. The drizzle had stopped and the weak grey clouds were lifting, letting the sunlight through. Candice had loved the valley at moments like this. Her sweet nature prevented her from seeing it as anything other than an enclave of rugged beauty. Every time the sunbeams burst past the turbid curtains of cloud, 
she would stop whatever task she was doing and drink in the sight. With its eternal coat of droplets, the land gleamed as new. Waiting for us to bring it to life, she said, to fill it with people and joy, a paradise valley. He listened to her innocent sincerity and believed as he had never believed in his life before. Never in all the months they'd spent alone together had they quarrelled. Not even a harsh word had passed between them. There couldn't be a greater omen of a glorious future. They worked side by side in the fields by day, using every hour of light to plant the crops. Then at night they made love for hours, with a ferocity so intense it almost frightened him. Lying together in the warm darkness afterwards, they shared their innermost thoughts, murmuring wondrously of the life their loving would bring to her womb. Miran wondered about those easy days now. Had the Xenoch watched them? Did it spy on their frantic rutting? Listen to their quiet, simple secrets? Walk unseen through the new terrestrial plants they'd infiltrated across the land, one in blood from its kind? Look up to see the strange lights in the sky bringing more usurpers? What were its thoughts all that time? while its world was ravaged and conquered? And how would it feel if it knew all its race had suffered had turned out to be for nothing? Miran sensed the Xenox's alarm as he reached the promontory's spine. It had stopped moving as he jogged up the last few metres of coarse tufty grass. Now he was astride the spine, looking down the tapering spit of land. The tip sank below the sluggish ripples of brown water 600 metres ahead of him. There were several clumps of large boulders and a few deep folds in the ground, but nothing which could offer secure cover. The Xenoch was retreating, slinking back to the tip. Miran couldn't see any scrap of motion, but he'd known all along it wasn't going to be easy. He didn't want it to be easy. Infrared sensor goggles or even dogs would have enabled him to finish it within days. He wanted the Xenoch to know it had been hunted, wanted it to feel the nightmare heat of the chase, to know it was being played with, to endure the prolonged anguish and gut-wearying exhaustion of every creature that was ever cornered, suffering as Candice had suffered, tormented as the ghosts tormented him. Miran began to walk forward with slow, deliberate steps, cradling the laser rifle. He kept an eager watch for any sort of furtive movement, shadows flittering among the boulders, a swell of ripples gliding along the boggy shore. Perhaps a faint puff of misty breath, that was something the Xenoch could never disguise. Whatever illusion it wore was of no consequence now. He had it. He would draw it into his embrace and slay it with loving tenderness. 
the final act of this supreme tragedy. A benevolent release for the Xenoch, for the ghosts, for Candice, and for himself. The Xenoch was the last thread binding them in misery. Its death would be a transcendent kindness. With 400 metres left to the promontory stubby tip, he began to detect the first flutterings of panic in the Xenoch's thoughts. It must be aware of him, of the deadly remorseless intent he harboured. Cool humour swept into his mind. You will burn, he thought at it, your body devoured in flames and pain. This is what I bring. Drowning in wretchedness and loathing, that was how he wanted it to spend its last moments of life. No dignity, no hope. The same awful dread Candice had passed away with, her small golden world shattered. He looked down into one of the narrow crinkled folds in the ground. Stagnant water was standing in the bottom. Tall reeds with magenta candy-floss seed clusters poked up through the frothy blue-green scum of algae, their lower stems swollen and splitting. Glutinous honey-yellow sap dribbled down from the wounds. Miran tried to spot some anomaly, a bulge in the grass like a giant molehill, a, a blot of algae harder than the rest. The wind set the reeds waving to and fro. A rank acidic smell of rotting vegetation rolled around him. The Xenoch wasn't down there. He walked confidently down the promontory. Every step brought a finer clarity to the Xenoch's thoughts. It was being laid bare to him. Fear had arisen in its mind, to the exclusion of almost every other thought. A chimerical sensation of wrinkling stroked his skin. The Xenoch was contracting, drawing in on itself. A protective reflex, seeking to shrink into nothingness so the terrible foe would pass by unknowing. It was rooting itself into the welcoming land, becoming one with its environment. And it was close, very close now. Bitter experience gave Miran the ability to judge. As the day belonged to him, so the night belonged to the Xenoch. It had returned to the homestead time and time again, creeping up through the dark like a malevolent wraith. Its obscene presence had corrupted the sanctuary of Miran's dreams. Often, after sleep claimed him, he would find himself running down the length of the valley with Candice, the two of them laughing, shrieking and dancing through the sunlit trees. It was the valley as he'd never known it, brilliant, warm, a rainbow multitude of flowers in full blossom, the trees heavy with succulent fruit. A dream of Candice's dream. They would dive cleanly into the blue sparkling water, squealing at the cold, splashing and sporting like young naiads. Each time he would draw her to him. Her eyes closed and her neck tilted back, mouth parting in an expectant gasp. Then, as always, her skin grew coarse, darkening, bloating in his grip. He was holding the Xenoch. 
The first time he'd woken shaking in savage frenzy, arms thrashing against the mattress in uncontrollable spasms. That was when their minds had merged, thoughts twining sinuously. His fire rage became the ice of deadly purpose. He snatched up the laser rifle and ran naked into the night. The Xenoc was there, outside the paddock fence, a nebulous blot of darkness which defied resolution. Its presence triggered a deluge of consternation to buffet his already frail mind, although he was never quite sure whether the tumult's origin lay in himself or the monster. Miran heard the sound of undergrowth being beaten down by a heavy body as the Xenoc fled. He fired after it, the needle-slim beam of infrared energy ripping the night apart with red strobe flares, illuminating the surrounding countryside in silent eldritch splendour. Puffballs of dense orange flame bloomed in front of him. Some of the drier scrub began to smoulder. Miran had sat in the open doorway for the rest of the night, guarding the grave. A thick blanket tucked round his shoulders, taking an occasional nip from a bottle of brandy, the laser rifle laying across his lap. When dawn broke, he had set off down the river on the trail of the Xenoc. Those first few weeks it couldn't seem to keep away. Miran almost became afraid to dream. Dreams were when the Xenoc ghosts came to haunt him, slipping tortuously through his drowsy thoughts with insidious reminders of the vast atrocity humans had wrought on Jubara. And when Candice rose to comfort him, the Xenoc would steal her from him, leaving him to wake up weeping from the loss. Miran reached the downward slope at the end of the promontory. The nail of the finger, a curving expanse of gently undulating peat, wizened dwarf bushes, and a scattering of boulders. Thick brown water lapped the shore a hundred metres ahead. The Xenoc's presence in his mind was a constant babble, strong enough now for him to see the world through its weird senses. A murky shimmer of fog with a cyclonic knot approaching gradually. Himself. Come out, he said. The Xenoc hardened itself, becoming one with the land. No, Miran taunted, heady with the prospect of victory. Well, <laughs> we'll see about that. There were five boulders directly in front of him. Big ochre stones which had fallen from the mountain's flanks far above. Splodges of green lichen mottled their rumpled surfaces. A sprinkling of slate-like flakes lay on the grass all around, chiselled off by a thousand winter frosts. He lined the laser rifle up on the nearest boulder and fired. The ruby-red beam lashed out, vividly bright even by day. A small wisp of blue smoke spurted from the stone where it struck, blackened splinters falling to the grass, singeing the blades. The thermal stress of the energy impact produced a shrill slapping sound. Miran shifted his aim with the second boulder and fired again. The third boulder unfolded. In the camp which housed the ecological assessment team, they called them slitherskins, 
a grudging tribute to the Xenox ability to blend flawlessly into the background. Rumours of their existence had circulated ever since the primary landing, but it wasn't until the virus was released that a specimen body had been obtained. Some of the xenobiology staff maintained their ability to avoid capture confirmed their sentience. It was an argument the custodian committee would rule on when the hearings began. The few autopsies performed on decomposing corpses found that they had gristle instead of bone, facilitating a certain degree of shape-shifting. Subdermal pigment glands could secrete any colour, camouflaging them with an accuracy terrestrial chameleons could never achieve. Miran had learned that those in the camp, too, feared the night. During the day, the Xenox could be spotted. Their skin texture was too rough, even if they adopted human colouring, and their legs were too spindly to pass inspection. They were nature's creatures, suited to wild woods and sweeping grasslands where they mimicked inert objects as soon as they sensed danger approaching in the form of the bull demons, their natural predators. But at night, walking down lightless muddy tracks between the camp's prefabs, one uncertain human silhouette was indistinguishable from another. The camp's dwindling population kept their doors securely locked after nightfall. When it stood up, the Xenoc was half a metre taller than Miran. As its knobbly skin shed the boulder's ochre, it reverted to a neutral, damp-looking bluish-grey. The body abandoned its boulder guise, sagging into a pear shape, standing on two thin legs with saucer feet. Its arms were long, with finger-pincer hands. Two violet eyes gazed down at Miran. Resignation had come to the Xenox's mind, along with a core flame of anger. The emotions sprayed around the inside of Miran's skull, chilling his brain. I hate you, Miran told it. Two months of grief and venom bled into his voice, contorting it to little more than a feral snarl. In one respect, the Xenox was no different from any other cornered animal, it charged. Miran let off three fast shots, two aimed at the top of the body, one dead centre. The beam blasted fist-sized holes into the reptilian skin, boring through the subcutaneous musculature to rupture the vitals. A vertical, lipless gash parted between the Xenox's eyes to let out a soprano warbling. It twirled with slim arms extended, thin yellow blood surging from the gaping wounds. With a last keening gasp, the Xenoc crumpled to the ground. Miran sent another two laser pulses into what passed for its head. The brain wouldn't be far from the eyes, he reasoned. Its pincer hands clutched once, and then went flaccid. It didn't move again. Distant thunder rumbled down the valley, a sonorous grumble reverberating from one side to the other, announcing the impending arrival of more rain. It reached Miran's ears just as he arrived back at the homestead. There was no elation, no sense of achievement to grip him on the long walk back. 
he hadn't expected there would be. Fulfillment was the reward gained by overcoming the difficulties which lay in the path of accomplishment. But Jabara offered him no goals to strive for. Killing the Xenoch wasn't some golden endeavour, a monument to human success. It was a personal absolution, nothing more. Ridding himself of the past so he could find some kind of future. He stopped by the grave with its high temple of stones to prevent the Xenoch from burrowing to its heart. Unbuckling his belt, he laid the laser rifle and its spare power magazines on the stones, an offering to Candice. Proof that he was done here in the valley, that he was free to leave as she'd wished. With his head bowed, he told her, It's finished. Forgive me for staying so long. I had to do it. Then he wondered if it really was over for her. Would her ghost be lonely? A single human forced to wander among those her race had slaughtered indiscriminately? It wasn't her fault, he cried out to the Xenoch ghosts. We didn't know. We didn't ask for any of this. Forgive her. But deep down he burned from bright flames of shared guilt. It had all been done in his name. Miran went into the homestead. The door had been left open. There was a rainwater puddle on the composite squares of the floor and a chill dankness in the air. He splashed through the water and slipped past the curtain into the hygiene alcove. The face which looked back from the mirror above the wash basin had changed over the last two months. It was thin, pinched with long lines running down the cheeks. Several days' worth of stubble made the jutting chin scratchy. The skin around the eyes had darkened, making them look sunken. A sorry sight. He sighed at himself at what he'd allowed himself to become. Candice would hate to see him so. He would wash, he decided, shave, find some clean clothes. Then tomorrow he would uh, hike back to the ecological team's camp. In another six weeks there would be a starship to take them off the planet. Jabara's brief sorry chapter of human intervention would cease then, and not before time. Miran dabbed warm water on his face, making inroads on the accumulated grime. He was so involved with the task, his mind dismissed the scratching sounds outside, a part of the homestead's normal background noises. The wind rustling the bushes and vegetables, the door swinging on its hinges, distant gurgling river water. The clatter which came from the main room was so sudden that made his muscles lock rigid in fright. In the mirror his face was white with shock. It must be another Xenoch. But he'd felt nothing approach, none of the jumble of foreign thoughts leaching into his brain. His hands gripped the basin in an effort to still their trembling. 
As Enoch couldn't do him any real harm, he told himself, those pincer fingers could leave some nasty gouges, but nothing fatal. And he could run faster. He could reach the laser rifle on the grave before the Xenoc got out of the door. He shoved the curtain aside with a sudden thrust. The main room was empty. Instead of bolting, he stepped gingerly out of the alcove. Had it gone into the bedroom? The door was slightly ajar. He thought he could hear something rustling in there. Then he saw what had made the clattering noise. One of the composite floor tiles had been forced up, flipping over like a lid. There was a dark cavity below it, which was terribly, terribly wrong. The homestead had been assembled on a level bed of earth. Miran bent down beside it. The tile was a metre square, and someone had scooped out all the hard-packed earth it had rested on, creating a snug cavity. The bottom was covered in pieces of what looked like broken crockery. The Xenoch. Miran knew instinctively it had dug this. He picked up one of the off-white fragments. One side was dry, smooth. The other was slimed with a clear tacky mucus. It was curved. An egg. Rage boiled through him. The Xenoch had laid an egg in his homestead, outsmarting him, choosing the one place Miran would never look, never suspect treachery. Its bastard had hatched in the place intended for his own children. He pushed the bedroom door fully open. Candice was waiting for him on the bed, naked and smiling. Miran's world reeled violently. He grabbed at the doorframe for support before his faltering legs collapsed. She was very far away from him. Candice? His voice cracked. Somehow the room wasn't making sense. It had distorted, magnifying to giant proportions. Candice, beloved Candice, was too small. His vision swam drunkenly, then resolved. Candice was less than a metre tall. Love me, she said. Her voice was high-pitched, a mousy squeak. Yet it was her. He gazed lovingly at each part of the perfectly detailed figure which he remembered so well. Her long legs, firm flat belly, high conical breasts, the broad shoulders, overdeveloped from months, spent toiling in the fields. Love me! Her face. Candice was never beautiful, but he worshipped her anyway. Prominent cheekbones, rounded chin, narrow eyes. All there is delicate as china. Her soft smile directed straight at him. Unforgettable. Love me! Xenoch. The fetus gestating under his floor. Violating his dreams, feeding on them, discovering his all-enveloping love. Love me! The first post-human encounter Xenoch, instinctively moulding itself into the form which would bring it the highest chance of survival in the New World Order. Its slender arms reached out for him. A flawless human ribcage was outlined by supple creamy white skin as it stretched. Miran wailed in torment. Love me! 
He could. That was the truth, and it was a tearing agony. He could love it. Even a pale, monstrous echo was better than a lifetime without Candice. It would grow, and in the dark, crushingly lonely hours, it would be there for him to turn to. Love me! He wasn't strong enough to resist. If it grew, he would take it in his arms and become its lover, her lover again, if it grew. He put his hands under the bed and tugged upwards with manic strength. Bed, mattress and sheets cartwheeled. The Xenox squealed as it tumbled onto the floor. Love me! The cry was frantic. It was squirming across the floor towards him. Feet tangled in the blankets, face entreating. Miran shoved at the big dresser, tilting it off its rear legs. He'd spent many evening hours making it from Aboriginal timber. It was crude and solid, heavy. Love me! The cry had become a desperate, pining whimper. The dresser teetered on its front legs. With a savage sob, Miran gave it one last push. It crashed to the floor with a hideous, liquid squelch as it landed on the Xenox upper torso. Miran vomited running wildly from the bedroom, blind, doubled up in convulsions. His mad flight took him outside, where he tripped and sprawled on the soggy ground, weeping and pawing at the soil, more animal than human. A strained, creaking sound made him look up. Despite eyes smeared with gritty tears, he saw the rock at the top of the grave cracking open. A tiny arm punched out into the air, Thin flakes went spinning. The hand and arm worked at enlarging the fissure. Eventually, a naked homunculus emerged in jerky movements, scattering fragments of shell in all directions. Even the Xenoc eggs had the ability to conform to their surroundings. Biran watched numbly as the homunculus crawled down the pile of sandstone lumps to join the other two humanoid figures waiting at the base. In the homestead, the safest identity to adopt was a love object, cherished and protected. But outside in the valley, survival meant becoming the most ruthless predator of all. Between them, the three miniature humans lifted up the laser rifle. Hate you! One spat venomously. Then its fist smacked into the trigger. Miran couldn't believe his own face was capable of expressing so much anger. There you go. Copyright is still Mr. Peter F. Hamilton's and Graham, thank you so much. Before we go, before we shoot off, don't forget, vote for Larry. Get Larry. There'll be a link on again. If you listened last week, Larry's trying to get a part in the Neil Gaiman He's got to go through these kind of preliminary rounds of getting loads of votes, which is a bit of a kind of nuisancey, hassly thing. But please, let's get Larry on that kind of... He would be fantastic in, as an audio on Neil Gaiman's It's the American Gods. So please do that. That would be fantastic. Well, there you go. That is, on the second time Starship Sova has been nominated for a Hugo Award. What an amazing thing. Until next week, I would just like to say, good night from me.
Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm.